I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode number 209 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Miriam, Pam Carmichael, Sandra George, Mary Oliver, and Winslow. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review. Our film review is The Houses October Built. The Houses October Built was released in 2014. It has 5.1 out of 10 on IMDb and 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Five friends are stalked by a group of mysterious and disturbed individuals while on a road trip looking for the ultimate haunted house attraction. Now, this film was recommended to me in my Instagram post where I asked for underrated horror films. And actually, people have been commenting this film loads on TikToks that I make about like horror films that I think you should watch. And this has come up quite a lot. Now, initially, I'm going to be really honest, I was sceptical. Because when I was looking for the film, I realised that the name had been changed from The Houses October Built. It's also known as The Houses of Halloween. And I, that is a red flag. That is a big lame is waving red flag with films when the name has been changed. In my experience, they tend not to be that good when the name has been changed. However, I will always put my hands up and admit when I am wrong. And this, I think, is one of the cases where I am wrong. So let's start with our likes column. So I actually really enjoyed the concept of this film and the idea of trying to find the most scary haunted house in order to recapture the terror of youth. I think it's a good premise. So they talk about how, you know, they went to haunted houses when they were young and things happened and they were so scared by them and so convinced that they were real that they wanted to, as adults, this group of friends, get into an RV, travel across America and test out all these different haunted houses and film it as they're going. And you know what? It worked. I think I would genuinely do a trip like this in real life. Haunted houses and scare attractions aren't as big of a thing in the UK as they are in the US. They seem to be a pretty lucrative and pretty big business in the US. And from what I've seen of them, you know, all of these haunted house scare attractions are obviously trying to outdo each other so they get more and more freaky and gratuitous every year. But we'll get back to that in a second. So it's a found footage movie, which I know isn't for everybody. Um, But if a found footage film is good, then they're generally pretty damn good. It can be really hit or miss with found footage films. But this one, I think, was a pleasant surprise. And there were genuinely some truly terrifying moments in this film. So as I always do with these films, I ended up watching it kind of on a Tuesday morning which is a very random time to watch a horror film, but it's I tend to try and do it during the day so that I can type and get stuff written down and think about what I want to say about it while I'm watching it. And uh, like there are moments, I had to pause it a few times because I was freaked. 
you know I like to do the whole pause the film go away do a chore come back to it so that I can get my bearings and stop freaking out about it but there were some genuinely freaky moments in this notably when the girl got into the camper van now if you've seen this film you will know exactly the bit I'm talking about there's a bit where a girl gets into the camper van and honestly it was so it freaked me out so much it was so terrifying something about them being in this RV in the middle of nowhere the way in which the girl got into the RV and the way that she behaved in the RV and their responses to it all of that freaked me out enormously and from what I can see this is a relatively low budget horror film and instead of kind of using dodgy CGI etc etc all of the effects in this film I think seem to be man-made effects and for that reason they kind of had to work harder and work cleverer to make it scary and you know what it really works like it really worked And the thing I really liked about this film is the human element of it. So throughout the film, there is footage of them interviewing various people like Vox Pops of people saying why they love haunted houses and why they love these scare attractions every Halloween and the scariest scare attraction they've ever been to interspersed with Vox Pops of people who've been asked like have you ever heard of like dodgy dealings going on in these haunted houses and news stories about terrible things that have happened at scare attractions that have really happened at scare attractions so it's kind of very much about humans and how far humans will take things and their hunt for the kind of most extreme scare attraction obviously takes a really dark turn but like this isn't too far removed from things that happen in real life and I think the competitiveness of it in real life means that creators of these scare attractions go harder and harder and go more extreme more extreme to try and be better than the others and more terrifying than the others and we do live in a period of instant gratification and and as as a generation I think a lot of people are desensitized to horror and gore and you know all of those things because they're quite commonplace in our tv and cinema and books etc so it makes sense that the natural progression of these scare attractions is to get more and more extreme and if you kind of want an example of that the McKamey manor scare attraction is something that you should look up I will say that massive trigger warnings if you are going to look up the McKamey Manor because it is extreme. It is a sort of scare attraction. It has a waiting list apparently of 27,000 people. And the guy who runs it is an ex-Marine, I think. And he, no, he's ex-Navy, I think. And um, it, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy what they do at that scare attraction. You have to sign a waiver complete a medical and complete drug tests and stuff before you can go through it but these people the the workers of the scare attraction are like dragging people around by their hair like hitting people stomping on people absolutely horrendous things and there is a petition that has done the rounds to get it closed down because citing that it's basically just torture porn like that's all that it is and it really intrigues me because the guy who runs it, um, he doesn't take any money for it. It costs the, the price of a bag of dog food to take part in this, which is wild. So you kind of have to think, I mean, what's he getting out of doing this? And why are people engaging in this? When I say this is extreme, it is extreme beyond all reason. And in the film, The Houses That October Built, 
there is a clip of a worker at one of these scare attractions who talks about how his life isn't great and his head is really messed up in his own words and that being a worker at this scare attraction allows him to take out all of those frustrations and become somebody else for a space of time and I found that really chilling and interestingly after I watched the film I was reading about the McKamey Manor and um, the Guardian newspaper interviewed some of the workers and some of the guys were saying oh yeah I really I go to town on these people when they come in you know especially bigger men I like to really try and hurt them as much as possible and I like that it allows me to get my frustration out on these people which really gave me the heebie-jeebies and in terms of the film being representative of an element of what happens in real life I thought oh you guys have got this bang on I've just realized that I'm rambling so our dislikes honestly I thought there was too much filler content in the beginning I know that in these found footage horror films there's generally a bit of a bit of build up a bit of setup so that we can establish who the characters are etc but I felt like it went on a bit too much and I was kind of annoyed and I was like oh I want to get to the actual story quicker and because it goes from haunted house to haunted house it is a bit relentless the shock the scares all of the crazy things that they see it just keeps going and going and going and going and it's non-stop which I think some people will love and I think other people will find too much and I felt like when it got to the point where things were really starting to heat up because I'd seen so much extreme content in the other haunted houses I just didn't really care and I felt like they didn't really have anywhere else left to go and as a result of that I really didn't like the ending I thought it sort of ended way too abruptly I didn't feel like there was any real resolution either good or bad and I felt like like I said they had shown so much extremity throughout the film that there wasn't really anywhere else for them to go but look as a whole this film was enjoyable it was good I I thought you know what this is a found footage horror it does what it said it's going to do and there are some genuinely freaky moments in it did I get haunted house scare attraction fatigue yes I did but there were bits that genuinely creeped me out. So I'm going to give this four stars. That's four stars for The Houses October Build, which is also called The Houses of Halloween. Thank you very much to all the people who recommended it. It was a good recommendation. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Which brings us to our story this week. Now for our story this week, we are going back to the US of A. We are continuing our grand tour. And as always, there will be a YouTube vlog to go with this story. And if you are on Patreon, there will be a Beyond the Veil vlog as well to go with this story. And as you will have seen, the story today is all about Alcatraz. So our story is kind of in two halves. You've got the history of Alcatraz in the first half and then the second half is the ghost stories. And the reason the history of Alcatraz is so long is because the history of Alcatraz is so interesting And there's loads of stuff that I've left out. There's stuff that I haven't gone into. And at the end of the episode, um, I'm going to do a bit of a signpost as to the other things about Alcatraz that I think are really interesting. The second half of the episode, The Ghost Story, is a story that I have made up based on other people's experiences in Alcatraz. So the story is made up, but it encompasses all of the different real life things that have happened to people in Alcatraz. And the reason I've done it that way is because Otherwise, it would have been like a list of things that have happened to people, which is interesting, but not as interesting, I think, as kind of creating a narrative around it. So let's get into it. Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary is arguably one of the most famous prisons in the world. Filled with stories of daring escapes, difficult conditions and famous inmates, Alcatraz's reputation has catapulted the prison to the forefront of popular culture. Countless movies, television specials and books retell the treacherous lives of the inmates that once called this prison home. Some of the famous inmates include Al Capone, George Machine Gun Kelly, Alvin Capri, Arthur Doc Barker and Robert Stroud. Machine Gun Kelly spent 17 years behind those bars. Capone spent less than five years being transferred to Terminal Island Prison in Southern California due to his debilitating illness from syphilis. Alvin Capri was one of the most feared inmates in the prison's history, spending 26 years serving time for 10 murders. Stroud is most famously known for his 17-year stay in Alcatraz and his interest in bird studies from behind bars, earning him the moniker The Birdman. Barker was famously killed while attempting to escape the hell of Alcatraz, but the famous prisoners aren't the only thing that cemented this prison's place in legend and lore. There were 14 different escape attempts from Alcatraz over the years. Over a 30-year period from 1934 to 1963, 36 men were involved in attempts to escape. Six of these men were shot and killed, Two of them were drowned. Two were caught and later sentenced to the gas chamber for the death of a correctional officer during their escape. The story surrounding these escapes has kept the mystery of Alcatraz alive all these years later. It sits, shrouded in fog off the coast of Northern California, two kilometres from the San Francisco Bay. The prison rests on a small island, locked away from the outside world. The island occupies 22 acres of land that was first explored in 1775, when Lieutenant Juan Manuel de Ayala named the island Isla de los Alcatraces, or the Isle of the Pelicans. The island was sold to the US government in 1849. A lighthouse was built, which was the first off the coast of California. The island was used by the US Army from 1850 through to 1933, 
the US government feared San Francisco might need to be protected in the wake of the California gold rush. A citadel was built at the top of the island for protection. Over 100 cannons were planned to be built, which would have made it the most heavily fortified site on the west coast. Although the defensive necessity for the island diminished as the government no longer needed to protect the coast of Northern California with guns. In fact, not a single gun was fired on the island. Well, until it became a prison. They decided that the best option for the island was to turn it into a federal prison. It was transferred to the US Department of Justice for the use of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And so, a maximum security, minimum privilege penitentiary was built in order to deal with the most incorrigible people around. This was an attempt to show the public that the federal government was not to be messed with and was serious about stopping the rampant crime that had gotten out of control in the 1920s and 1930s. Early prisoners included members of the Hopi tribe from the Arizona Territory who passively resisted a government attempt to assimilate them. Other prisoners included American soldiers who fought in the Philippines but joined the Filipino cause in the 1900s. In 1969, the Indians of all tribes occupied Alcatraz for 19 months in the name of freedom and Native American civil rights. And although I'm not going to go in depth into that story today, I would highly recommend that if you don't know the tale of the Indians of all tribes occupying Alcatraz, that you take the time to look it up. It's such an interesting story. The average population inside the prison was between 260 and 275 people. Although at one time it reached overcapacity with 336 inmates. Despite the dismal circumstances inside, some prisoners considered the living conditions of Alcatraz better than other federal prisons. Alcatraz was where prisoners were sent if they were misbehaving at other prisons. This only added to the prison's growing reputation. It was an island filled with the worst of the worst. Alcatraz operated in a highly structured manner. The daily routine was monotonous and designed to teach inmates to follow the rules and regulations that were put in place. There were four central rights that each prisoner had. Food, clothing, shelter and medical care. Everything else was considered a privilege and must be earned. Those privileges included family visits, access to the library and recreational activities like painting and music. When a prisoner demonstrated he could follow the rules he was transferred back to another federal prison to finish his sentence. The horrible conditions inside the prison led to inmates taking their lives into their own hands and making daring plans to escape the islands by any means necessary. In order to escape, inmates would have to sneak out of their cells, navigate the hallways and buildings of the prison, make their way over massive fences and then swim across the treacherous waters of the San Francisco Bay. Over 30 desperate prisoners risked their lives for their freedom. Officially, no one has ever made a successful attempt to escape. Everyone was either caught or killed before they reached the shoreline to run for the hills. On December the 16th, 1962, John Paul Scott and Daryl Lee Parker made a makeshift saw to cut through the bars on the kitchen window. They managed to get through and run for the water. 
Parker was found less than 100 yards away on a rock formation known as Little Alcatraz. Scott managed to make it to Fort Point, just beneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Teenagers found him suffering from hypothermia and exhaustion, and he is the only proven case of an escaped prisoner actually reaching the shoreline by swimming. June 11th, 1962 marks the most elaborate escape in the prison's history, and arguably the most famous attempt. Frank Morris, John Anglin and Clarence Anglin were not in their cells on the morning of June the 12th. The prison went on lockdown and an intensive search began throughout the prison. Instead of lying in their beds, the three men tricked the guards with cleverly built dummy heads made from plaster. They were painted with flesh-coloured paint, a paint that matched their skin tones and real human hair. Two days after the men went missing, a packet of letters sealed in rubber and related to the group was discovered by police. A bit later, paddle-like pieces of wood with bits of rubber in her tube were found somewhere in the water around the prison. A homemade life vest was also recovered from Cronkite Beach. The FBI, the Coast Guard and the Bureau of Prison Authorities pieced everything together with the help of an inmate named Alan West, who didn't make it out of his cell in time to leave with the rest of the group. He told authorities that the escape was planned way back in December when they came across some old saw blades. Using crude tools, they loosened their air vents at the back of their cells by drilling closely spaced holes around the cover so the entire section of the wall could be removed. They would then hide the hole with various items in their cell. The holes led them to an unguarded corridor. They made their way down the corridor and climbed on the roof where they set up a secret workshop where they built and did what they needed to escape. They gathered more than 50 raincoats that they turned into a raft and built wooden paddles, converting a musical instrument into a tool that would inflate the raft. They still needed a way out of the building and found that the ceiling that was 30 feet high was a good place. They used a network of pipes to climb up and eventually pry open the ventilators at the top of the shaft. They kept it in place by fashioning a fake bolt out of soap. On the night of the escape, Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin entered the corridor, gathered their materials and climbed up and out through the ventilator. They reached the prison roof and shimmied down near the rear of the cell house. They then climbed over the fences and snuck to the northeast shore of the island to launch their raft. But no one really knows what happened after that. No other signs of the men have been found. Did they drown in the water? Did they make it to shore and complete their escape plan? Rumours that they survived the trek across the water and successfully managed to live in hiding have circulated for years. The FBI refute these claims. The most violent escape happened on May the 2nd to May the 4th in 1946. Known as the Battle of Alcatraz, it involved the attempted escape of six prisoners. Bernard Coy, Joseph Kretzer, Sam Shockley, Clarence Carnes, Marvin Hubbard and Mirren Thompson took control of an entire cell house by overpowering correctional officers, entering the weapons room and obtaining the keys to the rec yard door. They wanted to escape via boat from the dock, but they never got the keys to the outside door. 
Therefore, they were forced to battle it out and continue to fight off the guards. They held two officers hostage. Both would be shot by Kretzer at very close range over the two-day siege. Shockley, Thompson and Cairns returned to their cells and stopped fighting. But Coy, Kretzer and Hubbard continued the fight. Eventually, the US Marines intervened to help the prison guards. They ended up killing the three remaining prisoners. In addition to the two guards and three prisoners, 17 other guards and one prisoner were injured during the standoff. Shockley, Thompson and Cairns were tried for the killing of the correctional officers they killed. Shockley and Thompson were sentenced to death by the gas chamber, which was acted out at San Quentin in December of 1948. Cairns was only 19 years old at the time and was given another life sentence. In March of 1963, Alcatraz closed its doors after 29 years of operation. It closed not because of the missing prisoners, but because it was simply too expensive to operate. Close to $4 million was needed for restoration and maintenance work, and the decision was made to just close it down, instead of investing the money in a seemingly cursed prison. After it closed, the building was essentially abandoned, but the island made the news again when it held a group of Native Americans who claimed the island belonged to the Native peoples. The tribe wanted to return the building into a Native American cultural centre and educational complex. At first, they had the backing of public support, but that wouldn't last long, and eventually they were forced to vacate the island. My grandfather was there when it happened. He was young. I think it might even have been his first night on the job. He used to joke that it was just his luck, but there was no real humour behind the joke. What he saw terrified him. It changed him as a person. He used to say that whatever happened that night scared him, but the human condition scared him even more. It terrified him what human beings were capable of. That night, he was fresh-faced and bright-eyed when he went to the island for his shift. A boat would bring the officers to and from the island, and that alone felt like the height of excitement for him. He was nervous, yes, but he was also full of that know-it-all attitude that seems so prevalent in young men. He was working on the rock. He had grown up in the city, looking out to sea at its hulking mass, and now he was working there. His mom and dad had been thrilled at their son getting such a prestigious and respectable job. Being chosen to go out there and work must have meant that he was the best in his field. Although secretly, he later told me, that his mom was quietly very worried about him working there. She was worried that he would get hurt. She was worried that being out there with the most hardened of criminals would change him. She was worried that the men who worked there, that... Well, she worried about what they were capable of too. They had all grown up hearing stories about the rock, even before it was a prison. It was said that the Native American tribes of the area used the rock to banish people from their tribes. If someone had broken tribal law, they would be boated to the rock and left there to fend for themselves. The Native Americans believed that the island was full of ancient and evil spirits. 
and that if you died there, your soul would be tormented by these spirits for all eternity. It was dark stuff, definitely. But stories get embellished over the years and people just loved a good spooky tale. At least, that was what my granddad told himself, the wind whipping in his face as he sped across the water towards the prison. He had heard all of the stories about Alcatraz over the years. And when he woke up this morning, he definitely wasn't afraid. But as that stone structure loomed closer, a small ball of fear was unfurling in his stomach. Tonight he was going to be working on the D-block. Stories of the D-block had even made their way to the mainland. It was said to be hell on earth dark and dank and the prisoners that were sent to D-Block were sent because they were the worst of the worst. If Alcatraz was a place where the unmanageable prisoners from other prisons went, then D-Block was the place where the unmanageables of Alcatraz were sent. So you can only imagine how bad it was. I sometimes think about my grandfather that night and how he must have looked to the prisoners. Young and clean cut with a distinct air of anxiety. I can't believe that they were all animals, waiting to get the chance to hurt him, and I can only assume that some of them looked at him and maybe even felt sorry for him. Before my granddad died, he would tell me stories about some of the inmates in Alcatraz, and I can't help but wonder if, in a different era, when mental illness and intellectual disabilities are far better understood, they ever would have wound up in Alcatraz at all. Sometimes he would call these particular inmates and I quote, soft in the head, which by today's standards is not cool. But it made me realise that perhaps there was a recognition that some of these men needed some sort of treatment that they would now never receive. But I digress. My granddad said that D-Block always felt colder than the rest of the prison, and part of that was intentional. If a prisoner was in D-Block or the hole, as it was affectionately known, then they were there to be punished. But there was something about the cold of D-Block that seemed almost unnatural. It was inescapable and it seeped into your bones, into your soul. The worst of the cells in D-Block had no lights, no mattresses, nothing. And the prisoners were stripped naked and given barely enough food to eat. Their toilet was a hole in the ground and they were just left, festering. In some of the cells, they would get a mattress, but only at night time. And it really was hell. My grandfather was shocked when he first made his way onto the D-block. He said that the noise was horrendous. In other parts of the prison, men would shout at him through the bars of their cells, or they would sing songs, and sometimes they would even laugh and tell jokes, but not on D-block. It was dark and cold, and the sounds were the sounds of men crying. The sounds of men moaning and begging to be let out. There would be the odd, maniacal peal of laughter, but it didn't feel joyous. It was almost worse than the crying. Men were typically only put into the worst cells for a couple of days at most. But some had been known to be kept in for longer. It may not sound like it, but two days naked with no sleep in the freezing cold, completely alone with your thoughts in the dark can be enough to drive even the sanest minds to madness. The smell was also horrific. Unwashed bodies and excrement. 
I don't think I need to describe that one for you, but my grandfather said in the beginning he was completely taken by surprise and the smell made him queasy. He had decided that the best way to make it through those first few weeks and to find his feet and his courage was to be quiet and do exactly what he was told. He was shadowing another correctional officer called Officer Walters, who my granddad would later admit was terrifying beyond all reason. He was a straight-talking man who exuded a sense of coldness and detachment that was disarming and somewhat frightening. He seemed like the type of man who had seen it all before and didn't even blink. My granddad was doing a fine job of keeping mute and following orders. He listened to Officer Walters tell him which prisoners to be especially wary of and why. He had a faint feeling of nausea all night so far, which was understandable given the circumstances. The night was creeping by, and while the noises on D-Block never truly stopped, they at least had calmed down slightly, and my granddad had gotten used to the noises anyway, which I would imagine was a strange feeling. At around 3am, something changed. My granddad was pacing the D-block up and down and up and down when he felt it. There was a dip in the temperature, and it had been cold already. This cold, though, was an unbearable cold. It was bitingly cold, and he tucked his hands under his armpits as he paced, willing some warmth into his extremities. He approached Officer Walters. Can you feel that? It's so cold all of a sudden. Walters didn't answer, but gave my granddad a knowing half-smile and raised his finger to his lips. My granddad watched him, unsure of what he was listening for or what was going to happen. Walter closed his eyes and raised his other hand and counted down. Three, two, one, on his fingers. Almost as soon as the last finger curled into his palm, it started. The screaming. It was a scream of pure and utter terror. My granddad said that he panicked immediately. He had never heard screaming like it, and he was instantly sent into fight-or-flight mode. Walters, however, hadn't moved. His hand, now with his fingers curled into his palm, was still in the air. His eyes were still closed and he still had that half-smile on his face with his fingers up to his lips. Walters, what do we do? Is he in trouble? Is he okay? What are we going to do? Walters just motioned again for my grandfather to be quiet and continued to listen. My granddad said that the more he listened the more he could make out that there were words interspersed with the screams. Help me. Help me, please. It's coming for me. Please don't let it kill me. Please. It's going to kill me. It was the poor, unfortunate soul in the worst of the cells on D-block. D-14. He was naked, in that darkness, hungry and sleep-deprived. Walters, what is going on? What is he so afraid of? Walters finally opened his eyes, but he didn't look at my grandfather. 
they always shout about this thing a monster they call it a huge black hulking thing with red eyes always shouting and screaming about it always around this time and always when it gets cold doesn't matter who is in the hole they always scream about the thing but should we should we check on him is he okay walters laughed but the laugh was cold and hollow he'll be fine they always are well as fine as they can be more laughter my granddad said that at this moment in time he was more terrified of walters than any of the prisoners in that place but he had no choice but to do what he was told he suddenly realized that the cell had gone quiet again in fact everything was quiet he looked around and listened intently and there was nothing it was like the whole block had taken a deep breath my granddad said that he inched closer to the cells and noticed that the air was warmer suddenly that intense biting cold was gone and from out of the shadows from behind the bars came a voice that made him jump he belongs to it now granddad said that he couldn't wait for the shift to be over all he could hear were the screams of that inmate echoing around in his head he had never heard pure terror like it as the shift grew to a close he tentatively asked officer walters if they should maybe check on the inmate no need came the flippant response happens all the time they're in the dark in the hole for a bit and they get panicky my grandfather had never been more thankful to see the sun come up it rose slowly and the feeling of fear seemed to dissipate more and more with each ray of sunlight he had done it he had survived the night in alcatraz the day officers began to arrive in preparation for the change of shift the alarm sounded to signal the beginning of the day he could hear the shuffle of the prisoners as they roused themselves and began to move towards their cell doors every morning the cell doors were opened and the prisoners had 60 seconds to present themselves in front of their cell door to be counted that morning the count was made and all prisoners were accounted for my grandfather said he remembered breathing a quiet sigh of relief he hadn't realized but his body had been rigid with tension since the screaming the count was done a second time and again all prisoners were accounted for but my grandfather couldn't help himself and he sidled towards the cell 14d it was time for the prisoner to be released so he had loped off with the others to the mess hall for their breakfast presumably shaken but otherwise fine maybe there was something in the cell that would account for the screaming last night he just couldn't let it go something about it had seemed so unearthly as he approached the door he caught the whiff of the cell he said the smell alone would be punishment enough for anybody it was sulfuric and it seemed to burn his nostrils then he saw it a hand laid out on the ground and rigid 
the tips of the fingers showing the first black streaks of decomposition. Holding his breath, he took another step and saw that the inmate was laid out on the floor of the cell, naked and clearly dead. His face was purple and his eyes were bulging. His face still held on to the last vestiges of terror. Around his neck were purple marks and it was clear that he had been strangled. Of course, my grandfather reported the death and of course there was nothing in the cell that the inmate could have used to hurt himself. My granddad was rattled, but Walters seemed unfazed by it. Oh, they'll always find a way, he said with a dismissive shrug of his shoulders. That's just the way these men are. They never did find a cause of death and to be honest it scarred my grandfather. Whenever he told the story his eyes would glaze over as if he was being dragged all the way back there again. But every time he told the story he always finished with a question, a simple question really. But the question made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end every time. If the inmate had died in the night which he clearly had judging by the condition of his body Why did they count the correct number of prisoners? Twice. By at least two separate guards. Who or what had been counted in the morning checks? You can just imagine my brain when I then got the job of doing night security on the rock. All the stories my granddad had told me whirled around my brain but the pay was decent and working nights worked well for my wife and kids. Like my grandfather, I had grown up with stories of The Rock, except my stories widely came from him and I believed him. He always had this look when he spoke about Alcatraz, the look that suggested something about that place had intrinsically changed him as a person. When I was working nights there, I just kept telling myself that of course these stories were invented to cope with the working environment. And, of course, a male-dominated violent atmosphere would breed stories of monsters. When you're surrounded by monsters, you need to create bigger ones, right? That online psychology class I had done in that bleak period of unemployment had really had its time to shine with this one. When I worked at Alcatraz, I would sometimes do my rounds and imagine my grandfather young and comparatively innocent becoming hardened and probably ruthless as time passed while he was working there. I don't think you could be sensitive in a place like Alcatraz and survive. My job was simple. I sat in a cabin reading, listening to podcasts, the usual, and then every couple of hours or so, I would do the rounds of the grounds and make sure that everything was in order. Up until this night, I had never had anything strange or untoward happen to me on the night shift. Sure, I would freak myself out on the regular, but as for actual paranormal experiences, there were none. Until this night. Everything was normal except for the fact that it was super foggy. I don't think I'd ever really seen a fog like it. When I stepped out of the cabin, I could barely see my hand in front of my face. It felt eerie, but of course it would feel eerie, being alone on this famously haunted rock in the fog. I did feel slightly resentful of having to do my rounds, though, if truth be known. I had visions of some angry spectre looming out of the fog at me. 
that didn't happen, obviously. But I think that a lot of people won't believe me when they hear this. They'll say it was the power of suggestion or that I misinterpreted something. But I had worked there for months at this stage and I felt like I knew the rock like the back of my hand. Even in the fog. It happened in the shower room. I know that sounds like I'm about to make some thinly veiled attempt at a crude prison joke, but I assure you I am not. The shower room was always eerie to me anyway. The thought of all these grown men forced to shower side by side in this open plan room. The lack of dignity in it always gave me the shivers. But what also gave me the shivers were the stories that my granddad had told me about inmates being stabbed in the showers. Anyway... Like I said, my round started with the shower room. I sort of had to walk in a circle around it with the shower heads all in the centre of the room. I can't really describe what happened, but something in the atmosphere shifted. It didn't feel colder and nothing physically changed that I could see, but I felt something change. It It was like the air became thicker, maybe. It's hard to describe, but that's the best I can do. I had my headphones in at that point. I had found that blasting death metal was a surefire way to curb the fear somewhat. For whatever reason, I decided to take my headphones out. I think I needed to understand what it was that had caused this shift in the atmosphere and I couldn't see anything had changed. So I suppose I thought I would hear if something had changed. I often think now about whether I regret taking out the earphones. And the answer is probably yes, mostly because I feel like people don't believe my story. I paused the music and took the earphones out, and for a brief second my ears adjusted to the sudden decline in noise. But there wasn't silence. There was a noise. Something different that I had never heard on the rock before, and I have never heard since. It was the sound of a banjo now look I know it sounds absurd but that's what it was the sound of a banjo and let me tell you absurd or not hearing it in that big open space knowing that I was alone on this island was petrifying I literally froze on the spot I couldn't move and I'm probably the worst security guard in history but there was no mistaking that it was the sound of a banjo playing a few warbling notes. It seemed to be coming from all around me like it was just part of the air. And then it hit me. Al Capone. There was no no way that this was happening. There was just there was just no way. My granddad used to tell me this story about Al Capone. Pretty much everyone knows that Al Capone had been to Alcatraz, locked up for tax evasion, but he didn't die there. He had been shipped out to another facility because he was riddled with syphilis and it was eating away at his brain. Anyway, while Capone was on the rock, he was absolutely convinced that if he went outside into the wreck yard, he would be murdered by someone. I suppose you don't get to that level of crime lord without ruffling a few of your competitors' feathers. However he did it, Capone managed to convince the guards that he couldn't spend the time in the wreck yard and that he needed to do something else instead. So during exercise time, Capone would practice his banjo. And he would practice his banjo in the shower room. 
and here I was in the next century listening to it. I remember thinking, surely not, this is ridiculous, but why on earth would anyone want to be here strumming a banjo in the shower room of Alcatraz in the middle of the night? For a moment I genuinely didn't know which was worse, the ghost of Al Capone or an actual human being also being on the island, hiding in the shadows with a banjo. I didn't know what else to do, so when the banjo stopped, I stayed going. It felt like my feet were encased in concrete with every step that I took, but I knew there was no one in that room with me. I knew the atmosphere changed, and I knew that I had heard a banjo. I made my way down to cell block A. I walked as quickly as I could and then made my way to cell block B, my torch scanning back and forth as I walked, but there was no sign of life. It was so faint at first that I almost missed it. It felt like intuition made me stop rather than the actual sound itself. But once I had stopped, I couldn't unhear it. It was worse than the banjo, a million times worse. It was the sound of someone crying. More than one person crying. I took a big deep breath and I remember thinking to myself that there was no getting off this island and that I needed to be brave. Ghosts never harmed anyone except, of course, for that story my granddad told me about the monster in cell 14D. I decided that I needed to find where the sound was coming from. Maybe, maybe it was a joke. Like some of the day staff had left a recorder to play these sounds. And I will admit that this thought did bolster me somewhat. I moved less gingerly this time towards what I thought to be the source of the noise. I moved along the thick stone wall, running my hands over it, engrossed in finding the source. But the source was the wall. I realised in horror, the crying was coming from inside the walls. I suddenly felt a blast of ice-cold wind in my face and the sound stopped. I was left in the silence of the night. That was it. I had heard the stories. I had probably heard all the stories about guards seeing figures in the cells that weren't there, about Warden Johnston, the Golden Rule Warden, who was escorting guests around when they all heard sobbing from the walls. Oh, that one definitely hit different now. The clanging of pipes and metal in the utility room. Oh, I had heard all of the stories, but job or no job, I was not hanging around in this building for one second longer. I sprinted out of the main building and was immediately met with a burst of light that stopped me in my tracks. The fog was still down, thick and heavy, but it had been illuminated by the light of the lighthouse. I remember in my panic idly thinking, well, thank fuck that a boat isn't going to crash onto the island because that's all I would need tonight. I sprinted down the hill back to the cabin and locked the door behind me. Standing against it with my chest heaving, I realised that my shirt was drenched in a cold sweat. When I finally got my breathing under control, I tried to rationalise what had happened. It must have been a joke or a prank and boy did they get me good. It was then that I noticed the darkness. The lighthouse had gone out. I felt a ringing in my ears as I thought again 
I even said it out loud. The lighthouse has gone out. The, the light, the lighthouse. Shit. Shit, the lighthouse. There was no lighthouse on Alcatraz. There hadn't been one for decades. But my granddad used to tell me that on certain nights, when the fog was particularly bad, the lighthouse would appear and illuminate the island once more. For many people, everything they know about Alcatraz comes from the famous Clint Eastwood film Escape from Alcatraz. Eastwood plays Frank Morris and leads the action-packed movie based on true events. The film's tagline reads, No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz and no one ever will, emphasising the monumental challenge each inmate fought in hopes of making their daring escape. Alcatraz was believed to be inescapable and earned the nickname of America's toughest prison. If you are brave enough, you can tour the prison yourself. In fact, Alcatraz is one of the most popular tourist destinations in all of San Francisco. Not only do they offer a regular tour of the federal prison, but you can also go on a haunted tour. The former warden's house, now just a ruin, is thought to be haunted. Multiple guards have reported seeing ghosts inside the barren house, between the morgue where the dead bodies were stored and the operating room where various escapees were sewn back together, to the cells where criminals and murderers lived and breathed every day. Alcatraz is most definitely one of the creepiest places in America. Oh, that was a bit of a marathon to record. Not that I've ever run a marathon, but I presume it is similar to recording um, a, a slightly longer story on a podcast. So firstly, I am going to mention that with this episode, I am posting a picture, a ghost picture You'll be able to check out the picture on Instagram, on Facebook, on Patreon. And I'll also post the link to the article about this picture in the description of this episode. So when I was researching for this episode, I watched uh, Ryan and Shane on The Watchers doing their like haunted Alcatraz ghost tour or ghost investigation. And they talked about this picture. I thought it was a cool picture. So I said I would include it. So in 2014, this uh, couple believe that they captured an image of a woman in Alcatraz. So the image was taken by British teaching assistant Sheila Sillery Wald from Birmingham, who visited the jail with her partner Paul Rice in April 2014. So she said that as soon as we entered the prison, everything felt eerie. I didn't feel comfortable there. While doing an audio tour of the place, I casually stopped to take a snap of the empty visitation block window on my iPhone. When I glanced at the photo on my mobile, I saw this dark female figure in the picture. I looked at the window again and there was no one in the room. I knew straight away that the woman in the photo was a ghost and I showed the snap to Paul. From that point onwards, I wasn't interested in the Alcatraz tour anymore. I just kept looking at the picture over and over again. So they believed that the image looks like a woman from the 30s or 40s, like from a different era. She seems to be looking right at the camera through that visitation window. Sheila then contacted the staff of Alcatraz to see if they, if anybody recognised the woman. Nobody recognised the woman. and But she believes that it might be a female visitor of a prisoner who kept returning back. I decided to post this picture because I thought it was a cool picture. It's nothing to do with the stories that I was telling. Um, but I thought it was interesting. I don't particularly know why a female spirit would be in Alcatraz, but who knows? Maybe it was the emotional turmoil of visiting your loved one in prison over and over again 
that caused like a kind of residual haunting I don't know but I could imagine that there's probably a physical and rational explanation for the photo but I do still think it's a cool picture I visited Alcatraz while I was in America and I loved it I thought it was honestly such a good tour so you're you go in and you're given um headphones and as somebody who is famously quite an um isolated little creature I don't really enjoy group tours that much so it was very nice to just have headphones and to be able to wander around of your own accord it's a very interesting tour and a very interesting place to visit but it is creepy like it 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 honestly it gave me the heebie-jeebies genuinely I will say also that they have an amazing exhibition all about the Native American takeover of the island it is very very cool and I would highly recommend that anybody who doesn't know that story I didn't know that story I didn't know anything about it if you don't know the story of the Native American takeover of Alcatraz um, Native American people took over Alcatraz I think it was for 19 months then I really really recommend that you look it up because it is fascinating so here's the thing right the most famous ghost story about Alcatraz is the story of the monster demon whatever people like to call it with red eyes that allegedly killed a prisoner in cell block d14 and when i was watching the ryan and shane the watchers youtube video about their experiences of alcatraz shane made a point which i completely agree with and he said is it really that hard to believe that prison officers prison wardens correction officers whatever you want to call them who were capable of putting prisoners in these horrible conditions naked in the dark barely fed with no nothing to lie on with just a hole in the ground as a toilet if you're capable of putting people in those conditions then it's very likely that some of these people were also capable of turning a blind eye to violence perpetrated against these prisoners whether that was by other prisoners or by correctional officers and I just think that narrative about the red-eyed big demon creature is probably more interesting and that's why it stuck. And it probably was convenient at the time if the story isn't a modern story, if that makes sense. If the story is around from that period of time, then maybe it was more convenient to have everybody focus on the monster with the red eyes rather than the fact that a prisoner was strangled in a jail cell. However, the other stuff, those residual sounds like Al Capone's banjo the sounds of men crying the sounds of things banging and slamming I I can't say I'm surprised that they happen in somewhere like Alcatraz to be honest like of course it is going to be a place that is full of emotion and sadness and anger and pain and trauma and listen you know there's going to be men in there who were violent men and who were violent criminals and maybe lacked empathy, all of those things. But when I was in Alcatraz, they did a really good job at highlighting who some of these prisoners were. And they made it very clear that, you know, it was likely that some of these prisoners had maybe intellectual disabilities, had mental illnesses, that some perhaps would have been considered neurodivergent and they really struggled with various elements of day-to-day life, ended up in Alcatraz and then really struggled being in Alcatraz. So there is a lot of emotional turmoil there. And I do feel like emotional turmoil breeds this negative energy that maybe, I mean, maybe it, maybe it does echo through time. As an aside... There were a lot of good birds on Alcatraz. 
lot of good birds going on and one of the Alcatraz workers like took me aside and told me all about the the, the mating habits of these particular birds. I was I was excited. You know, it, it it was a lot and I enjoyed it. I like a bird, so I appreciated the abundance of birds and the imparting of bird knowledge. And that last bit that I included in the story about the lighthouse apparently appearing on foggy nights is a true bit of folklore about the Alcatraz Island. So apparently on foggy nights, the lighthouse that was torn down still appears. How or why that would happen, I have no idea. But it's not the first time we've dealt with a disappearing building on our travels. We've heard stories of whole manor houses that appear and disappear at various points. So why not a lighthouse? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. It was a really, really fun episode to write and record. As I said, the YouTube video to accompany this episode should be out right about now. And if it is not out, then the link to subscribe to our YouTube channel should also be in the description of this episode. Just to remind you, generally, in general, if I mention anything like YouTube or videos or anything like that, all of the sources... And where you can find everything is generally linked in the description of every episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a spooky story that you would like to send, you can send it to Podcast at gmail.com. If you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And if you want to check out the website, you can do so by going to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.